Welcome to the Success Inspired Podcast, a business and personal development podcast to help you accomplish more in life and realize your true potential. And now here is your host, Vit Muller. Hello, everybody. My guest today is Australia's leading corporate wellness educators with 17 years of experience in the health and fitness industry. He is a regular contributor to media publications such as Ask Men Australia, Clio, Elle magazine, and more. <clears throat> Back in 2010, when I was starting my fitness career, he was my teacher and mentor during my diploma in fitness studies. And it's a real privilege to have him on the show today to talk about all the great stuff he's been up to in the last 10 years. We had a great chat today about everything that he does, and you'll get to hear many valuable insights learning about effective wellness programs, him and his team do at Leon Health, executive performance for CEOs and CFO levels, as well as his story of overcoming fear of uh, public speaking back in 2000 when he was asked to speak at Olympics opening ceremony. Please welcome to the show, Rob Leon. Hi, Vic. Lovely to see you again, mate. It has been a while and I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you. Great to have you in the show, Rob. Great to have you in the show. What have you been up to in the last tennis? We haven't we haven't chatted for for a good couple of years, has, haven't we? Yeah, I know. Look, life takes everyone in uh, different directions, no doubt. I'm still I'm still teaching and, and educating uh, people coming into the fitness industry, which is still a, a very much a passion of mine. But I've moved out of Sydney and moved up to the Central Coast with my young family now, so I do a lot of that remotely and online. So I've basically built out my business now, which is Lion Health. And I focus on three distinct areas in the health and fitness industry. One of them is personal training, mainly for clients with medical conditions, because my background is definitely within the special populations and medical condition market. I also run a burgeoning sort of corporate health and wellness program where I work closely with a number of uh, law firms and other businesses within um, Sydney running programs and health consultations and group training sessions and whatnot. And then the third part, like I said, is that fitness education part of my business. So it's been great to really sort of build out a business that's got sort of three distinct arms. I still get to give back to the health and fitness industry as I just turned 37 and I've been doing this for 17 years now. So it has been a while, you know, it's almost time for me to get out of the way and have the youngsters come through. But, uh, you know, that's still something that I'm really interested, uh, interested in and, you know, it was great to teach you, Vit, as we went through the Diploma of Fitness and, uh, you know, anything that you can do to upskill and add value to yourself as a health and fitness professional is really, really important. Absolutely. It's so important to keep on educating, keep on learning as well. You should never stop learning. If you're, if you're listening to this and you're somebody in the fitness industry, never stop that learning process. Always look and seek more. Look for courses, look for people to speak to like, like yourself. I always remember, you know, sitting in the class during the diploma course. It was amazing, you know, having you as a teacher and, and talking to us yourself as an experience. Also, you know, EP exercise physiologist, you were giving us some really valuable information, education around around that it was very specific and yeah, it was really good, great, great course. I always, always reflect back on those studies. It was great times back then. Yeah, I think I think it was really important, you know, when we created that diploma of fitness course at the college, it was to it was to meet a gap in the health and fitness market for these personal trainers dealing with clients with medical conditions and also we spent a whole term talking about injuries as well. So those two areas I think are vital for a lot of health and fitness professionals to upskill in um, because it allows you to broaden your client base and allows you to really kind of understand the body at a much deeper level. It's not just sets and reps, but it's really understanding what the most effective exercises are as a sort of a medical intervention you know because in exercise science and exercise physiology which is where my background comes from we use exercise as a medical intervention so like a doctor will write a prescription uh, on a pad and they'll say take these and come back and see me in four weeks time we write prescriptions on pads they're just exercise programs you know and we and we closely track and monitor and we're looking for health outcomes such as you know reducing reliance on medication improving your activities of daily living you know improving overall health and wellness and mood and mental health and so all those things are vital and it's you know i think it's vital that if you are suffering from health or medical conditions or need a little bit of extra help getting someone that is well qualified in those areas is is definitely vital Absolutely. I always remember the specificity. That was the part that I always enjoyed. And I'm a, I'm a bit of a technician. I like, you know, I like think I like to go in detail uh, when you know prescribing programs. And I always remember, you know, you were you were showing us the sprint drills, and you know, you would 
before that, you know, with set three, set four, you just think, okay, sprint, okay, run as fast as you can. But then you broke it down and biomechanics level and, and you know it was a real structured approach to to programming for a sprinter and also programming any other programming it was um like as if people that we train for general public as if you train them as an athlete so i was i really enjoyed that process it was really good so yeah um, <laughs> yeah and i think what's important with that as well is that it really benefits the clients if you've got someone programming at that level of detail because if they really understand why each better exercise benefits them specifically in what they're trying to achieve, then they're much more likely to be compliant to the program. They're much more likely to stick to it. They're much more likely to, to get more out of it because they're going to stay on board with you. And also they really understand, okay, I'm doing this and this is the reason why. And that's, you know, I, I sound like a broken record sometimes, but it's all about that sort of features and benefits language. You know, as a trainer, you want to don't just tell them what they're doing, but tell them why they're doing it and why it's beneficial for them. And as, as trainers, you know, and not to get too much into the weeds, we think that general people know why all these, what all these exercises are, how they benefit you, but you really need to break it down. And so your clients can understand, okay, I'm doing this for this reason. It's to work this muscle or it's to improve this health outcome. If you do that, you get much better buy-in and compliance over the length of the program. And more clients as well, because you position yourself as a as a real expert, with, and you show that knowledge that you have. Hundred well. percent. And like as my business, you know, I do very little, you know, marketing, very little social media now. I'm I'm really lucky to be at a point where I have a very strong referral and word of mouth sort of sort of a part of my business, and and it just comes, you know. If, if you get results and outcomes for one person, especially if they've got a specific medical condition, you end up seeing a lot more people with those same types of conditions, everything from cardiovascular disease. You know, I've got clients that have multiple sclerosis. I've got a client who's completely blind. You know, I've got clients with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And once I start getting results and outcomes for them, then I tend to find more of those types of clients end up coming my way. No, I can't. I can't really resonate to that because I've never uh, trained a client like that. I'm not qualified at that level, but I can. I can assume it must be amazing, amazingly rewarding when you when you help somebody who, for example, who is blind to be able to have better better uh, quality of life, right? Oh, most definitely. My my blind client's fantastic. You know, he's he's the CEO of a resources company. He's incredibly busy. He has a, a photographic memory, but we still train consistently, you know, twice a week. We're doing online sessions. I'll see him in person. He'll he'll literally move his work schedule. He's traveled domestic, international travel. He'll work it around our training sessions. So for him, our training sessions are a priority. And, you know, as you get a little bit older and you go a bit further into this industry, you know, I don't do a lot of body composition, make people look good naked, six pack at the beach, chest and biceps. I'm not really into that much anymore, to tell you the truth. You know, my my real real goal and what really jazzes me is seeing people with those health outcomes. You know, like if I can get someone off high blood pressure medication, if I can rid them of lower back pain, if I can make them functional, you know, in terms of functional movement patterns, like they're the things to me that I think are very important from a long-standing sort of health and vitality perspective. And they're the things that now really motivate me as opposed to I want to lose five kilos or I want to, you know, look good for summer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of great programs for body transformations. Um, there's nothing wrong with having that as a goal, but there needs to be more people that, because there is a lot of professionals, fitness professionals do, who do focus on that aspect. But like you said, you know, it's 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 also rewarding to help other people that have um, a real struggle in life, and they need to have somebody like yourself to to help them improve their quality of life. Yeah, most definitely. Couldn't agree with you more of it. Now, let's wind the clock back a bit. When you were starting out, what inspired you to to enter the health and um, fitness industry? Well, the health and fitness industry was always a passion of mine. It stemmed mainly from high school and playing sports. I was playing rugby and cricket at a you know at a semi decent level until a few injuries kind of curtailed my career. So I was always interested, obviously, in the human body. I went to university. I went to UTS a uh, very long time ago in two thousand and two. I did my exercise science degree, and as soon as I got into anatomy and physiology, I remember the first time I learned about the ATPPC system, I'm sure this rings a bell to you, and creatine phosphate and lactic acid and anaerobic glycolysis. Like I was hooked, man. I was all in. I'm like, I, was loved, I loved science, 
wasn't that great at it high school, but as soon as you start talking about the science of the human body, I'm like, man, that this is me. I'm all in, you know? And then I was really lucky to, to get a job working at the university gym when I was in my third year of university. So what was, that was vital for me because I was using everything that I was learning in real time straight away. So my health and fitness career really kind of just kicked off from there. I didn't really see myself ever doing anything else. I hate wearing pants, so I get to wear shorts for a living, which is always a good <laughs> idea. And then also, you know, with, with, with my parents, you know, I've got a bit of a family history of, of some health problems that run in the family. My dad's got epilepsy. He had that ever since he was 18. You know, my, my grandfather died early of Alzheimer's. My uncle passed away a couple of years ago from motor neurone disease. We've got a lot of sort of neurodegenerative diseases that run in our family. My mum is having some issues with sort of her legs. She's had knee replacement, circulation problems, overweight and those sorts of things. So seeing that in my parents as well really kind of um, spurred me on to get in the industry. So I think it was my sporting background that got me in the industry to begin with, but then it was seeing what I could do and how I could help people with the medical conditions that really pushed me in towards that sort of special populations training category. What are some of the challenges that you've come across as a, as a new exercise physiologist when you were starting out? Well, the biggest one is, I think, a lot of people in not just the fitness industry, but in every industry come across and it's the imposter syndrome. It's that, it's that feeling that you're inadequate or perhaps you don't know everything that there is to know. I made a lot of mistakes early on in my fitness career. And one of the first mistakes that I always made was pretending that I knew everything. You know, and I think we do that a lot in business um, and in life because we're just scared of failure. We're scared of being uh, shown out. So if someone had a question about anything, I'd always have an answer. You know, mm. even if I didn't really know the answer, I'd kind of BS myself along the way. And I've thrown that out the window now because as you get older and as you learn more, you obviously realize that there's so much more to know, you know? So I think that was a big, a big thing for me was to try and get over that feeling of imposter syndrome. And, you know, it comes with age. It comes with hundreds and hundreds. And I've done thousands and thousands of exercise sessions led now with groups and singles and you know, corporates and all that sort of stuff. So it does come with time. It's not something that as a 21-year-old, you can just wake up one day and you don't have it anymore. So I think that was one of the biggest sort of hurdles um, that I had. And then the second one that comes to mind was I moved overseas to America in 2009 and I took up a job in cardiology. So obviously I've got an, I've got an exercise science background, but I moved straight into a really busy cardiology practice in Phoenix, Arizona, where I was living with my girlfriend who is now my wife and I signed on as a nuclear medicine technician which means I was running cardiovascular stress testing on treadmills I was doing sort of a 24-hour telemetry of your heart and I was having to like sort of read and interpret ECGs and I jumped in there and I thought that I would knew every uh, that I would be fine and I'd know everything and mm. as soon as I got into the medical field it was like again a completely different language and I remember the first or probably the second day I was there one of the girls who was already there and established, she gave me a, a piece of paper that had about 25 different heart rhythms on them. And she's like, if you're going to work here, you need to know all of these. And I knew maybe one, maybe two of them. And I remember going home that night and saying to my, my now wife, Tessa, I, I, I cried. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, you know, like I've just been hit with this thing and, and, and here I'm thinking I could just BS my way through this. And, you know, my whole life I'd been kind of, you know, if I didn't have the answer, I'd find my way through. But now it's like, well, you've got to know it or you don't. So I went out that night and I bought myself a little mini ECG pocketbook, right? And then I kept, them in my, I kept it in my scrubs. So everywhere I walked with me, I had this little mini ECG pocketbook. And on every single break I had, Every time I was sitting in the car, every time I had a spare moment, I was flipping through this book and I was reading these rhythms and I was understanding them. And I just blunt force, just pushed my way through it and I got there. And then it all clicked and then it all started making sense. So that was, to me, that was a big hurdle that I had to overcome. And that really taught me that, hey, sometimes you need to go in and you've got to do the work. You can't just think that you can just skate through and, and smile and, 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 and talk yourself in and around as a problem. Sometimes you've got to go in and find that solution. Absolutely. I mean, there's a saying, right? Pressure makes diamonds. And being under pressure like you were, I can imagine that were just had to drive you know, the brain capacity to all-time high. That was really exactly get right. <laughs> oh, and, and I'll tell you why there was more pressure because I was on an E3 working visa. So if I lost my job, I would have had 10 days to leave the country. Yeah. So I was on a two-year work contract, but if I lost my job, 10 days and you were out of there. So I really had to, it was really a big sink or swim moment uh, for me. 
And actually, one other thing comes to mind with the cardiology because it was a very interesting, very interesting concept. And I built a lot of really effective personal relationships and communication skills through talking to a lot of the doctors there. Now, in the particular practice that I worked in, the doctors were seen as like the big head honchos. You know, they were the big important people. You didn't really talk to them unless you were spoken to. If a doctor walked down the corridor halls, you'd have to look busy because, you know, you must be doing something at all times. And there was this real kind of separation of, you know, the doctors were up here and all the workers and all the technicians were all down here. And one of the first things that I did, I kind of threw that out the window straight away. It helped that I had an Australian accent and I was in an American job, but I just go, look, all every single one of these doctors are just human beings. You know, they're just the same as me. They've got families at home. I'm sure they work a lot harder than me. They're on call. They're at hospitals late at night. They're doing complex invasive procedures. But at the end of the day, they're just human beings. So I actually just started to talk to them more about just them as human beings. I'd ask them, hey, how was your day? So, you know, what did you get up to on the weekend? You know, did you see this or did you do this? Or how about we go catch up for a drink or we go play golf sometime in the next couple of weeks. And, you know, I think it took put, put a lot of the other staff offside, but all they were getting from the staff was, yes, sir, no, sir, no, I haven't done this, or yes, I need to do this. But, you know, we've got to remember that it, it, we're all just human beings. Mm. And as soon as I did that, it really, really improved my interpersonal and communication skills. And also it gave me the confidence to realise that we are all humans. Everything that I've done from now on and all these executives that I've worked in and the meetings that I go into these corporate wellness programs, I start with where we're all humans. Let's try and all help each other first. And then if we can work a product or a service around that, then that's fantastic. Absolutely. And I, I agree. I mean, when you talk about, if you talk about, you know, teamwork and, 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 a, and a good, you know, teamwork environment, whenever there is too much of an authority and too much ego or the perception of it, it just breaks breaks the communication and, and it doesn't really flow. The workflow doesn't really you know work between the people. So I definitely agree that you know taking everybody on an equal level. I mean there is there's always a hierarchy that's mm-hmm. for sure. But uh, yeah, being able to just be open and have an open conversation with anybody it's it's always better for the teamwork. I can relate to it from you know a gym environment for me managing people. You know first time when I was um, back in Sydney when I was managing a gym. It was uh, new to me, and I, and I was, uh, my ego sort of uh, got more off me, and, and I felt a bit more of a, a buff for some reason. Then, so I did, that didn't really work well, and I mm. was under a lot of pressure. And I would, you know, have all these visions and where the business needs to go, and I would just direct, direct, direct what needs to happen rather than sort of fostering uh, a collaboration. So, yeah, it's never good. I tell you what, one of the one of the I'm I'm big on asking really good questions and i think one of the best questions you can ask anybody is what can i do to help you know Mm. if you're if you start with that here i am let's collaborate let's work together what can i do to help you and this comes from my background as a health and fitness professional because what am i i'm here to do is i'm here to help but in every conversation every relationship i'm trying to have up and down the chain it's how can i help you what can we do together and and if you start on that footing all of a sudden you bring everybody together almost like a 50 50 and then we're all working together and then we're all pushing in the same direction nice yes absolutely yeah. let's talk about your business i know right now you know you, you've got leon health but back then when you were my teacher you were running athleta mm-hmm. well yeah well i was working with an old business partner of mine neil yeah he was a a very important and effective business mentor for me in that in that company. And now, in the last sort of two years, I've kind of we've broken away and I've I've created my own my own business. Yeah. What are some of the key business lessons that you learned while working with with Neil? Yeah. So Neil was a really important business mentor for me. He was the guy that really got me back up and running when I moved back to America from America to Australia at the end of two thousand and eleven. So he really helped me build a bit of a client base. You know, he really gave me some some sort of guidance and motivation to kind of head in the right direction, which was great. And he was already very well established as as a very effective personal trainer, exercise physiologist who had access to some high profile clientele, which that always helped as well. But the big thing that we would do all the time is we'd be doing weekly goal setting sessions and weekly meetings, and we would do them week in, week out, no matter where we were, no matter what we were doing. We were always leaving with two to three actionable things that we would need to do before the next week. And we would try and hold each other accountable and it would kind of work both ways. So that was really important in us kind of pushing forward the direction of the business. It was really important to me because he was on my case to 
look to source new leads, look to find new clients. And, you know, I learned, I learned a lot about how to build a business through him. So it was really, really uh, vital. And I've taken that concept forward in terms of understanding how important it is to have a business mentor wherever you are in business, because he was obviously quite a few rungs ahead of me at the time. And I wanted to get to that level, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I needed to ask him the right sort of questions. How did you did do this? What did you do here? And I think another really important question that I think needs to be asked for all business owners, we might touch on this a little bit more later on, is that we shouldn't always ask, when you're asking a business mentor what worked for you, because there are a lot of different ways in which you can go and still have a successful business. I think what a better question to ask most people is what didn't work for you or what did you do early on that went wrong? that you wasted a lot of time or money or energy on. And what you tend to find with that is a lot of those answers tend to be very similar. And so then you can start going, okay, if I try and avoid those things and focus more on these things, then I'm going to get to where I need to go. So the path to success can be windy and it can go a lot of different ways, but usually the path to failure is a little bit more linear. That's what I've found. So that's one of my favorite questions I, I like to ask anyone in a business, both in different types of businesses ahead of me, underneath me, what have you found that hasn't worked or what's been a waste of time for you? And I think that's a really important question to ask. That's a really good point, yeah, because everybody has different backgrounds, different understanding, um, different experience. So we all have different, diff like you said, different paths to get to, to that success. And so, you know, seeking some kind of a blueprint, you know, or an analogy of making an instant soup, following the, yeah. the instructions exactly as they've written and there you go, you're going to be successful in business following some sort of blueprint. It's never really, doesn't really work that way. You will always need to sort of pivot and shape it up to, to your own way to make it work. But, but yeah, that is a great point. Having that understanding of what are the failures that others have done, have, have gone through, have experienced That's something, yeah, that's something that uh, there is a, there's a commonality in that. So that's Most great. definitely. And it is obviously, as we all know, as business people, it is okay to fail because it means you're out there trying things. But what you want to do is you want to fail early and you want to fail cheaply and then you want to move on, you know? So you need to be obviously constantly tracking things. That, are they working? Are they not? Whatever metrics you decide to use. But if something isn't working for you, you need to cut and run, you know, because it's just going to send you down a further of a rabbit hole. You're going to spend more time, more money and more of your energy Because you think about energy as a finite resource as well. There's only so much energy you can put into things. So if you're pulling yourself in 10 different directions, you've got to really go, okay, what isn't working? What can I cut out and what can I focus on? And one of my big things with fitness professionals entering the industry is that you don't want to try and offer a thousand different types of services. You know, I've got students completing their Cert 4 qualifications right now and online and they submit a business plan. And one of their business plans is what sort of services do you want to offer? And some of them say, I'm going to do one-on-one -on -one training, I'm going to do group training, I'm going to do older adults, I'm going to do women only, I'm going to do online fitness, I'm going to do, you know, beach sessions. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm like, that's six services. It's way too many, you know. Focus on what can I get really good at? What are one or two really, really good niche successful services that I know that my skill set is works with? And then from there, we can look to expand out once you become the market leader in those services. So they're the ones that you really need to focus on. So I think having that narrowed sort of approach is vital. Mm. Why do you think that is that people tend to pick more things uh, to start out with? It's, it's a combination of excitement of the industry because they see the potential for growth. Yeah. But like I said, I keep coming back to energy as a finite resource. If you've got six things, you're going to spend 15% of your energy on all of them. You know, whereas if you've got two things, you might spend 50% on each. And I think that's just the most important thing. Now, obviously, you need to do your due, due diligence in terms of where's my target market, you know, what, what's in demand, what can I make money from, et cetera. But at the same time, if you try and spread yourself a little bit too thinly, people just get too excited, you know, especially in the health and fitness industry, which is so image conscious, so social media driven, so online now focused that people think all I need to do is create an Instagram and make it look real good and offer a thousand different services and I'm going to get people from all walks of life come and contact me. And that's just not really the reality. It really isn't. So, you know, you're not fostering creating relationships. You know, if I started with a simple one-on-one -on -one personal training business and all I focused on was getting kick-ass results for my clients and then asking for referrals, I'm going to build that up very quickly.
Okay. Then from there in six to 12 months time, now I can start to institute, okay, this is all looking good. This is working for me. How about I start some small group training sessions, you know, two to three, four at a time, and let's build that up. So that's how I've always taken the approach. And that's allowed me to split my business into three distinct arms, which has kind of helped me because it, it's, again, three is probably a, a lot of things to focus on, but it is also only three very specific niche sort of markets that I focus on. Mm. And and obviously, there was a, there was a journey that take you there took you there yeah. they didn't start it from the get-go now let's talk about those so number one corporate wellness right now would that be the number one right now for you yeah i think definitely in terms of growing and building my business i'm definitely looking to to, to do that obviously it's been the most difficult time of year for corporate health and wellness with COVID hitting you know you want to talk about bad luck stories i had um, a brand new six-part seminar series that I was that I had created in conjunction with a colleague of mine who was an ex-Olympian. He played beach volleyball for Canada at the Olympics in London, 2012. So we created this fantastic six-part seminar series, and I was going to roll it out to three or four different corporate contracts. I had three seminars booked in for the last week of March, and then COVID hit. So literally on that Friday was my last corporate day. I was in at a law firm doing one-on-one health consultations. I had three sessions booked in next week and then one a month booked in for the week after. Boom, poof. Vanished overnight, you know, tens of thousands worth of dollars of business, just gone in the blink of an eye because people were locked in for home and 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 budgets went went south and people companies cut back on discretionary spend and all that. So now that we're kind of coming down, hopefully, out, out, out the back end of COVID, we're really looking to kind of push and build that up. And I think the big things that companies and uh, organizations are seeing is definitely the need for a, a community concept within their workforce, especially if we're going to be having a staggered start back to work, if people aren't going to be back in the office full time, how can we stay connected with our clientele? How can we create that sense of community? And also, how can we take care of our, our employees, not just physically, but obviously mentally as well? So I've got a range of sort of services uh, that I tailor to those types of markets. Mm. Now, for somebody listening, maybe somebody who's got a smaller business, maybe 10, 20 employees, looking to implement some sort of wellness program or start somehow, what would be some simple strategies that they could, they could do on their own to start up with? So the first thing that I think is the most important thing to come from is that that concept of community, okay? What can I do for my staff, even if it's five, 10 or 20, to make them feel more connected together? Because if they're more connected together, they're going to be pulling in the same direction in your business, which is great, but also you're going to be keeping each other accountable for their, for their own health and wellness. So one of the first things that I put into a program when I build up corporate wellness is the concept of group training. We try and find logistical arrangements before work or lunchtime or after work, but getting people exercising together, getting people sweating, getting people feeling good. We all know how great you feel after an exercise session. Now, if I feel that in my work environment, then I'm going to associate all these work colleagues with feeling good, right? Mm. And that's that's such an underrated concept. So rather than going back to a work where we're sitting at a cubicle and maybe we're having issues or we're having disagreements with people, if we can get out and we can sweat together, then we're going to feel great, you know, and then that's the sort of energy that you want to take back into the office for the next four or five hours of your day. So I always tend to start there. The next thing that I do is I look at stress relief and stress management, especially in a lot of my law firms that I work with that have a lot of, a lot of very, you know, I, I call them the, I call them dark to dark. They turn up when it's dark, they go home when it's dark. Those types of, those types of employees. So I put a lot of our lunchtime sort of yoga and meditation and deep breathing type uh, services and classes together. So they can cut the day in half. They can get, as I, one of my favorite sayings is get out of your um, brain and get into your body, right? So they can get into their body with a little bit of a practice, nothing too sweaty. You know, they don't have to go shower and all that, but they can move, they can, they can breathe, they can downregulate that nervous system, get that sort of parasympathetic that rest and digest nervous system going and be a lot more calm and a lot more effective for the rest of the day so they're they're sort of two core offerings and then what i like to do at scale as well is talk to a lot of the people individually so having an exercise professional going in and sitting down with each staff member for 20 minutes is is vital because a lot of these a lot of these employees they might not have especially the guys hate to say it they might not have seen a gp for five or six years they might not have seen anyone in regards to their health because they've been too busy. But if you can book in and see me and we can do some body composition testing, we can check your blood pressure, we can talk about your nutrition, we can set yourself some goals. And then I come back every eight weeks and we check in again, see how you're going. 
those sorts of services are vital and they're always really well achieved. So I'll spend a couple of days um, locked in a conference room at, at, at some sort of office sort of seeing people back to back. And I really, really enjoy doing that and connecting with people one-on-one. So that's another fantastic service. No, that's great. That's great. Just to summarize then, keeping it simply uh, base, back, back to basics, incorporate some sort of a group fitness in your business between your, with your employees, some sort of a group training. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, Yoga, so 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 some, some sort of yoga, stretching, meditation, nervous system down regulation. So if it's half an hour of breathing or meditation in the middle of the day, great. And thirdly, if you can, if you've got the means, you know, having your employees chat to an exercise professional one-on-one and setting that on a sort of a recurring schedule. So every eight weeks I come back in, I check in, I yell at you if you haven't been doing what I tell you or, you know, we, we, we kind of go on a bit of a journey together. I think that's important. Now, what would you say to some who, you know, perceive a good workout as something that is intense? And if it wasn't intense, if they haven't felt the pain, it wasn't a good workout. Because you talk about the concept of down regulating, right? Mm-hmm. So, why do we need to worry about that? Yeah. So the concept of down regulation is essentially giving your nervous system a bit of a, a bath, a bit of a rest. Yeah. So life can be stressful. Work can be stressful. Uh, relationships can be stressful, lack of sleep can be stressful. And then what we tend to do, a lot of people tend to do is they throw really hard, intense, constant exercise on top of that. So you're throwing stress on top of stress, okay? Now, small amounts of stress are good. So if you had a really hard 45-minute exercise session and you were really chill for the rest of the day, that's a great day, right? That's the right amount of stress. But if you have a really hard 45-minute weight session in the gym then you go into 10 hours worth of meetings where you stress and then you're going and having three beers and then you're not sleeping sleep four or five hours it's just too much for your nervous system so what we need to do is think about what's the opposite so the opposite is to down regulate is to focus on your breath to get the heart rate down you know get the blood pressure back under control and that's where those types of breathing practices and stretching and yoga and meditative sort of sequences i think are really important so it's the yin to the yang and a lot of people just put the pedal to the metal. They put the hammer down over and over and over again, and you've got to balance it out because otherwise it's just too much. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about that concept of homeostasis. It's so important, right? What is homeostasis? It's when the body is in balance, body balance. is digesting, uh, heart rate goes down, you feel relaxed, and, and everything just works. As opposed to being in that constant fight or flight mode, you're constantly just at cortisol, just going all-time high, and then you become immune suppressed after after a certain period of days, weeks, roughly. I'm just yeah, eyeballing yeah, it. yeah, most definitely. So yeah, you can become immune suppressed. You can literally have sort of a bit of a cortisol meltdown, and you can go into sort of long term sort of chronic fatigue issues. You can have all sorts of issues in terms of like sort of skin problems. Obviously, blood pressure can go through the roof. And, 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 and your mood levels change as well, which is not great. You're not going to be the best person to be around as well. And that feeds into sleep. It feeds into an increased need for alcohol and, and sort of sugary foods to kind of keep the roller coaster of blood sugar levels up. So it's just, you know, you're kind of trending in a bad path. So we need to find a way to kind of press the reset button on your nervous system, give it a bit of a bath, like I said, and just sort of relax and downregulate. I think for any organization, it's really important to, to think about this, think about every single employee on their individual level about this, 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 this state of a good balance for mm. good performance because let's talk about that. I mean, how does being in constant fight or flight have, affect your performance? I talk about this a lot, especially when I'm going in and sort of discussing the options for corporate wellness programs is uh, a lot of employees like to employers like to look at the bottom line with their staff. They like to look at like their absentees and rates. Like, you know, if I can have a staff that's less sick and less days off work, then that's going to be a more effective sort of like workplace. But what I tend to look at is the concept of presenteeism, which I'm sure maybe this might hark back to 10 years ago when we were in diploma. So presenteeism is when you've got staff members or employees that are there, but they're not functioning at 100%, okay? So, you know, if I was to sell you a corporate wellness program, I'd say, look, look, look at the numbers. If you've, got, if you've got 20 staff that all make $100,000 a year, yeah, and they're operating at 70% capacity, you're losing $30,000 a year per staff member, you know? So what can we do to claw some of that back? You know, so spending time and money and, and an interest on your employees' health is so absolutely vital, right? Because we want your employees operating at their best, both physically, both mentally, both emotionally. They're going to be better team players. They're going to be more effective at what they do. 
and they're going to be healthier and fitter, you know? And I, I like to expand that to like the concept of like doctors, you know, would you want to go and see a GP who's 25 kilos overweight, who smokes and then tries to take medical advice off them? No, like, you know, you want to, you want to find a GP that's as fit and as strong, as healthy as you are. So you want staff members that are in that same sort of mode. You want a nice fit, healthy, motivated, engaged workforce, because that's where teamwork comes and that's where results come from. Do you have any good uh, success stories, some good examples of some corporate clients that you've serviced and how, you know, in some stats, in some numbers, how it sort of improved the bottom line? Yeah, yeah, I do. Look, one of the hardest things with with corporate wellness and sort of judging effectiveness of the programs is it's very hard to put a dollar value on sort of, you know, people want to know about like return on investment and and, and wellness is such a subjective term. You know, we can talk about, you know, we've lost, 150 kilos as a group of 10 over the past year, you know, that's all well and good. But how do we measure the improvements in mental health and effectiveness and productivity? It's very hard to kind of quantify and measure. There's been quite a few studies out and there was a Harvard study a few years ago that looked at for every dollar, this was in in the US, for every dollar spent on a corporate wellness program, the the, the company received about $3.50 to $4 worth of indirect employee health benefits. So, I mean, from that from that perspective there, it's an absolute no-brainer. You know, what I tend to focus on again is what can I do to help this group? How can I bring this community together? And what we end up doing is we, with a lot of my groups, I've got a law firm, McCullough Robertson in Sydney CBD, we end up doing things like obstacle course races together. So we'll book one eight to 10 weeks in advance. We'll have an eight to 10 week training program that will lead up to it. And then we'll have a whole weekend. I'll come up to the central coast, group of 10 to 12 to 15 of them we'll all do the race together there's camaraderie there's teamwork they've really achieved something we've gotten over a lot of clients fears we had we had one of the staff members that couldn't swim and we had to take them through neck deep water so everybody's kind of working together we hung out had beers and a barbecue afterwards like it was all fantastic so you know for me they're the types of things that i'm trying to do what can i do to bring these companies and these groups together and what can i do to create an environment where they're excited and happy to be healthy together so we know that this is a solution that works. Now, the question is, how do you roll it out in an organization? Where should it start? That's a very good question. So the first thing is, is understanding sort of the size and scope of the company and understanding what service offerings are going to work for you. So like I said before, you know, getting some established group training times out where we've got trainers to come in and service boxing classes or boot camps or run clubs, which we do, especially in the weeks leading up to see you to surf, that's great. So that's that's a really important way to start to implement. Getting those health consultations in where we can speak to the staff members on a one-on-one basis. You know, I'll tell I'll tell a company, look, I'm coming in in three weeks' time and I'll get an entire day booked out within 30 minutes, you know, because people are, are really keen to finally get a chance to see and speak to somebody, you know, and obviously the company's paying for it, right? So those things are vital. And then from there, we can look at making individual changes you know, individual changes in people's health that has a flow-on effect within the company. So that's kind of where I tend to start. Then we can come in with some things like monthly seminars and information sessions, which are great. Events, like I've talked about before, so building up to a specific event or, or sort of like a see your surf race and things like that. So the opportunities are really endless. I like to do a bit of a sort of a, an audit of, of, of the company before we get started, have a look at their size, have a look at what type of staff demographics, age groups, et cetera. And then we can kind of really tailor some programs to suit their needs. And then we just look at uptake, you know, not all programs are effective. Sometimes the uptake's not great. If, if an uptake's not great on a program, we fail early, we cut it, we try something else, you know? Right. So, and then we're just looking for the maximal amount of engagement within the programs because that's the most effective way to spend the time and money as a company. Yeah, that, that was, that, that's what I was after to ask you about that because some because it comes down to the culture in in a company in an organization right there's some organizations where the employees are all unfit most of them don't exercise as an example and so trying to roll out a program like that you're just going to get a lot of backlash you know a lot of you know low interest a lot um, of I'm too busy yeah i get yeah. that all the time and it, look it does come down to the to the demographics and typically the most well-attended corporate wellness programs are the one that have the the demographics that tend to skew a bit younger. Also, you know, I work a lot with law firms and law firms are very, 
difficult because they're quite time conscious. You know, they'll be in court or they'll have meetings or they tend to work very long hours. So with those types of ones, I run sort of a lot of remote classes. I focus a lot on those sort of seminars and those individual health sessions so they can book it at a time that suits them. And we spend sort of less time working on some of the other some of the other aspects of the service. So it really does depend on the uh, company. But like I said, you know, we will put something in, we'll try it, we'll give it a six-week run. If it doesn't work, we'll cut it, we'll try something else, you know. But at the end of the day, I'm coming in, we're here to help. What is it? What can we do? Now let's talk about top executives, the top level of any company. That's where the, re- the leadership should really come from, right? How important is it for, for these top level, you know, these top level role, CEO or CFOs, how important is it for them to actually take on board program like that for themselves? Look, 100%. It is absolutely vital. And whilst we won't get a lot of the CEO and CFO guys at, say, the group training sessions, which which for obvious reasons, they're very busy, they've got meetings, we do get a few, which is great. Um, for them to take an interest and, and an understanding in the program itself is absolutely vital. So I do see a lot of them in terms of the one-on-one health consultations that I run. I do get a lot of them to kind of uh, come into the seminars and talk and introduce and explain the concepts uh, as well. I like to do a lot of discussions with some of the CEOs and CFOs in front of staff members about health and wellness. So I do that I do that as well to really kind of get people on the same page. So that's really important. It's another interesting thing is privately I do train quite a few clients in the CEO CFO space. And I found that they're all extremely highly motivated and they're all pretty do, doing a pretty good job with their health and fitness. I always say if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. So it always astounds me that CEOs and CFOs have time to cycle 120 kilometers on the weekend or you know run triathlons or, or or do marathons or whatever but a lot of them do seem to do that i think it comes down to that type a personality and that drive i've got a client who is the ceo of newsest which is a which is a sports supplement company i've been training him for years and years and years and we train once or twice a week he's working long hours in the in in at the office and he's always you know up in the middle of the night emailing and dealing with stuff from overseas but he'll ride 200, 250 kilometers on the weekend, you know, because to him, that's important. That's non-negotiable. For him to be an effective executive, you know, he needs to put time and effort into that. So if they can do it, you know, everybody else can. So there really is an excuse. I don't like the I don't have time excuse. It's just a lack of priorities. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There's always there's always one who who goes again the current, but uh, yeah, we can we can make it happen. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> now the show is about inspiring others through you know, sharing success stories. Uh, what was your success story, Rob? Well, that's a really important one. I think my success story is still coming. You know, Managing to sort of juggle everything that I'm doing and be an effective dad, I think to me is an excess, a, a successful story. You know, I've got a five-year-old daughter and a two and a half year old son at home, you know, and so being being able to manage my energy levels and being effective both at work and away from work to me is is definitely an idea of success. You know, as I have gone through this industry and gone from areas times where I'm driven by, you know, more clients and more this and more money and more notoriety, I've really kind of pulled that back and I go, if I can help and make an impact to my clients and my corporate groups and my students through my fitness education, that's what I'm here to do. And if I can do that and also be an effective dad, as you're about to find out, I think that's going to be really important. So to me, that's I've got a, I've got a very different sort of concept of success. I'm really happy with where my business is at. I was lucky that by having three distinct parts of my business, you know, COVID really knocked out one of them, which was the corporate wellness one. But what I te- also found was that my fitness education side of my business became twice as busy because mm. we had more and more people with more time at home to upskill, to think about the next step. I was getting flooded with marking and, and, and submissions and case studies and videos and things like that. So that part of my business actually really built up. So, you know, without me even knowing it, by being able to diversifying into these areas, I was still able to maintain sort of a bit more of a bulletproof type of business. And then with my one-on-one clientele, it's, it's, it's there and it's never been stronger. So, you know, whilst I'm happy with where I'm at, I'm still looking to always progress and push things forward. You know, I'm moving into a different phase of my career, um, getting a little bit older. And for me, helping others is the most important thing. I love it. I love it. Uh, The big takeaway point from this is that I guess your perception of success will uh, change through different stages of life. So there's no right or wrong for anyone to have their own level of, of success journey, a success 
goal that won't they, they perceive as a success goal whether it's you know having a, a, a fancy car if whatever it is that drives you whatever it motivates you it's it's great but like you said uh, you're in that <laughs> yeah. that's exactly can- yeah look it's funny, it's funny you mentioned cars one, one of my things that i always say you should buy the cheapest safest car your ego can afford that's always been that's always been my rule. So your definition of ego is up to you. If your ego demands a big car, you can do that. You know, mine obviously doesn't. As long, I'm six foot seven. As long as I can find something I, I, I can fit into, I'm fine. And and you know, success to me changed pretty much the moment that I had my first child because it really put life in the perspective for me, and it made me realise that now is the phase to give to other people. And if I can do that as much as possible. I mean, I can do that as, as effectively as possible and I'm always looking for ways to be more effective than that's what I want to do. Mm, yeah, I love it. See, for me, if I reflect back 10 years ago, I was I was very driven into you know, entrepreneurship, business, business, business and growth and you know, financial success. I and remember also- those days, I remember them, mate. I was, I, and I was really impressed because you were a student and you were getting after it. You were going after it. You had, you had you know, you had the VitFit, you were doing all the online stuff, you were creating these portals, you were creating all these different businesses and marketing companies. And, and I, thought, I thought it was fantastic. I really did. Mm. But now, my level of success actually is different. See, now for me, what I perceive as success is having a good balance, a lifestyle business that allows me to be at home with the family, with the little, little one, with my son, with my partner. At you know, obviously earning earning a decent income, mm-hmm. but I'm no longer like I don't need to be a millionaire kind of thing, you know. Like I just want to have a good quality of life where I can enjoy my free time, and yeah. I think that's an important one because sometimes we chase that dream of being being rich, or you know, some people might like I was like that. I remember I was like that, you know. But it's what is true happiness, right? Is it having a big bank account and just being overworked and busy and not having any time for yourself, or or any time to really be present with, mm-hmm. with friends and family. Mm-hmm. Is that success? Is that happiness? I don't know. For me, it's I, not. Mate, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think I think a lot of it does come with age because in my early 20s, I was felt exactly the same way even into my late 20s. And it was really getting into the medical field and understanding that, hey, there are people that need help. And that's what we're here to do in this industry is we're really here to help people. That's really shifted my mindset. And, and, you know, mate, I could write a book from all the stuff I've seen and all the things I've heard from being a personal trainer in the eastern suburbs of Sydney for the past sort of 10 years, you know. And one of the big things that I've noticed with a lot of my top end of town clients, mate, is, you know, they're not all the most happiest. They're not all the happiest people in the world. They've all got their own things going on. They might have the big houses and the fancy cars and, and, and all that sort of stuff and a life that looks good on the outside. But a lot of them are struggling on the inside, you know. So we really need to redefine what that concept of of of, of success is, and, and and find your own, and don't get sucked in too much with keeping up with the Joneses, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, never never lose track of your own inner in the balance, in the happiness, because uh, again, you know, for those of you who are listening, you who are in your twenties, early twenties, if you have that drive, if you have that fire under you, I say go for it, go all in. Use that fire and pressure your dreams. But while you're in that journey and you're working hard to build your own businesses, make sure that you find those moments to reconcile with yourself, with your own efforts, with your own successes, so that you can stay in balance and don't lose track of your own inner happiness. Make sure you find that time to personally have a have a time to deload, offload, you know, from all the stress and spend time with friends friends and family every now and then. Don't just work 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 because before you know it, you'd be in your 30s and then you'd be like, where did all the time go? <laughs> that's exactly right, mate. That, that, that's really well said. I couldn't agree with you more. And like I said, it does come a bit with experience. But, you know, if you've got the if you've got the energy and, you, and, and the motivation and drive, hit it a thousand percent, you know, but take time to make sure that you're always heading in the right direction because you want to make sure that, that car is always pointed in, in, in the direction that you want to go. And sometimes the, the, the road's going to change as, as, as you age and as you get more experience and understand more of of, of what it is you want out of this life. Now back to Europe, talking about giving back and you know educating others, inspiring others. You also do some public speaking, don't you? 
Yeah, I do do a little bit of public speaking. This year, I've, I've had a, uh, a PR company that's kind of come on board, Popcom. Shout out to Amanda. And she's been fantastic at getting me a few speaking gigs and a few other bits and pieces. But a lot of this stems back from when I was really young. And it's another really important formative moment for me. And my confidence shot through the roof was that I got the chance to uh, speak at the 2000 Sydney Olympics opening uh, ceremony, The the not the actual opening ceremony, but the dress rehearsal. So I'll make a long story short. In 2000, obviously, the Olympics were in Sydney. Before the opening ceremony, they had two dress rehearsals, which were basically just a dry run of all the events and all the all the hoo-ha and all the, you know, the the shows and the performances. And they needed someone to play the role of the Australian Olympic Committee chairman, who was Michael Knight. Now, he's the same height as me. He's six foot seven. He's a really tall guy. So I was at high school one day. They plucked me out of high school. They said, hey, you're the same size as this guy. We need someone the same height so that we can get the right camera angles. We can get the right security footage. We can get the right whatever. Can you come to Homebush and can you make a speech? And I'm like, sure. And I thought it was just going to be like an empty stadium. I'd be at the Olympic Stadium, whatever. And, you know, we had a couple of rehearsals and all of a sudden I'm, I'm at the event and there's 95,000 people there. The place was completely packed. It was sold. They, they sold tickets to the dress rehearsal before the Sydney Olympics and it was completely packed. And I was w- with another girl and she played the role of Juan Antonio Samaranch, who was the IOC chairman. And we did everything that they were going to do on the night. We ate the same food. I had a security guard escort me if I had to go to the toilet. It was wild. It was crazy. I went backstage and met all these John Farnham and all these Australian, you know, singers and celebrities. And then it was my turn to deliver a four-minute speech on a stage in front of 95,000 people in my school uniform. And I remember sweating through the whole thing. I sweat through my entire, had my blazer on, but I had a white shirt underneath. I swear that white shirt was see-through. And so I went out there and it was it was bizarre experience. It was completely dark. There were camera bulbs going off. And two nights in a row, I delivered a four-minute speech. And I just pretended I was Michael Knight. We'd like to thank the athletes for coming. And we'd declare the games open and all that sort of stuff. And it was such a crazy experience. And for someone who had struggled a little bit with, with public speaking and you know, I remember at high school having to do a talk that would last two minutes and I'd, you know, time it and I'd be too fast or too slow. And I got up there and I did it and I did okay. I think I stuffed up one of the lines and people started laughing. And so I had 25,000 people laugh at me. And then after that, I was like, well, I'll tell you what, if I can do that, I can do absolutely anything. And mm. honestly, ever since then, my fear of public speaking just went straight out the window. It really kind of brought me out of my shell. It, it, it made me a lot more extroverted because, I mean, talk about a stage in which you have to deliver. And I also realized I stuffed up one of my lines and, and people laughed at me. And I'm like, well, that's the worst thing that can happen to me. I mean, it's not that bad, is it? So, you know, it was a fantastic experience and it's something that's really, I think, you know, it was 20 years ago, but ever since then, it's really affected who I am as a person for the the positive, of course. That's amazing. And they actually say, you know, if you can get your audience laugh, that's a great, that's a great, that's a great, what's the word? Skill to have. Maybe look, look, I didn't do it through humor. I did it through stuffing up, but maybe that's humorous as well. So sure. Why not? I'll take it. Yeah, embrace it, right? Embrace it because it makes you a bit more relaxed, makes you a bit more human when people laugh. If you at your own stuff ups, laugh at your own stuff ups. You have to, you have to <laughs> lean like like I say a lot. I'm like lean into it. Like if you've got character flaws, if you've got things that 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 you find are awkward, mate, just lean into it because as soon as you show that you can, it's this, it's the Australian way, you know. As soon as you show that you can take the Mickey out of yourself. People know that this is someone that you can, that you, you can be relaxed and you can be yourself around, you know. Yeah. So the fitness industry is all about six packs and big chests and looking great and, and and living a perfect life and eating chicken and broccoli and nothing else, mate. Lean into who you are. Just be real. Build rapport. Be be honest. You know, have empathy with your clients, and that's where you're going to go far. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Now I can relate to that to that public speaking. Uh, the imposter syndrome myself i remember back in what was it 2014 after four years being in the industry i've been you know qualified good three years by then i got asked by if you remember ross i got asked by him yep. to i remember college was looking for um, a new teacher to to teach and there's an international college for uh, upcoming fitness professionals and i got asked to to come along for uh, for an interview for for a job to teach and I, and by that time, I mean, I've been teach, I've been training people for three years, so I guess I had a little bit of experience. I felt a little bit confident about you know helping clients, but not teaching fitness. I was like, "Are you sure? Like me? 
And he's like, "No, nah, mate, yeah, we, you'll be, you'll be all right." And you know what they did to me? The first, the first sort of a day, the first shift they gave me, instead of putting me in the gym to teach practical, which obviously I would feel much more comfortable with, because that was my world. Now they put me in a in a theory in a room yeah. of twenty international students to to deliver a lesson, to deliver a three hour um, class. And I can tell you, it was yeah, I, I was. The, it wasn't nice. It was it was pretty ugly at the beginning. I was I, I was very nervous, say, yeah. but I found those little like my own little like uh, little tricks, you know, to to make myself comfortable. And one of them was to you know to actually yeah laugh at my own stuff and just try and trying to keep things a bit more down to earth and trying to like keep an keep eye contact with you know like not just look at the whole crowd but like keep an eye contact with a few people so that you like you're there with them and mm-hmm. things like that and. Anyway, what it gave me, uh, you know, I think I think I was teaching for about a year, year and a half. That experience, what that gave me, while it wasn't ninety thousand crowd, it was still a crowd, nevertheless. That experience just gave me so much more confidence in me and and being able to talk, because when you're in there and there's twenty people looking at you, expecting you to teach them something about fitness, there's a pressure that's put upon you to deliver that, and not mm-hmm. just deliver it by knowledge, but also how do you say the things, right? Mm-hmm. And what I found, my brain, before that, I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to talk for four hours. But what I found was when, you, when you're in that stressful situation, going back to what we said be, before, right? Pressure, pressure uh, diamonds, makes yeah. diamonds, right? I actually found my brain started to working at a hi- higher capacity, trying to suddenly I was able to talk and, uh, and talk about a topic for longer and longer. And I'm, before I realized, wow, this is, I can do this. Yeah. So it's definitely, yeah, I, I definitely recommend anybody, anybody try and do some public speaking because that confidence gives you to, to do anything else. Like if you then want to do public speaking for corporates or running boot camps, you're going to be running those boot camps with much more confidence mm-hmm. and much better leadership. I couldn't agree with you more. And I suppose when you got out of that session, I'm sure you thought to yourself, well, that wasn't that bad, was it? You know, and and like I say to a lot of people, uh, everything is sort of about getting your repetitions in um, as a business owner, as a presenter, uh, talking in front of people and gaining that confidence. Everything's about reps, and I know it's a it's an old saying that we use in the fitness industry. But the more and more you do things, the more and more you get exposed to it, the easier and easier that it gets. So you know, that's my advice for a lot of small business owners: is just get in there, get those reps going. You know, make some mistakes, like we spoke about before. It's fine. It's okay to fail a little bit earlier. And, you know, keep pushing things forward from there. Absolutely. Now, is there anything that you wish you'd know when you started your own business? I wish that I had taken the time to uh, speak to business mentors a lot more earlier in my uh, sort of business process, uh, you know, starting and growing and trying to scale up my business. Um, I thought that I was a little bit too proud to try and lean on other people for help and support. And obviously, we spoke about before I had Neil to really kind of help me um, when I was working with that leader. But to take that next step forward, you really need to be sort of playing in a bigger pool and talking to people who are a lot more successful than you that have carved out, uh, you know, a, a real niche or, or run a successful program in your space and come at them from in terms of, you know, how can I help? How can we collaborate together? I didn't really ask for a lot of collaboration and a lot of help early on. And so I felt like sometimes I sort of was spinning my wheels and going nowhere. And I think as human beings, we just want to help each other. And it's funny, every time I've asked for help, um, I've I've received it and I've received it without any sort of uh, tit for tat or I'll help you out and I know I'm going to ask you for a favor later on. You know, at the end of the day, I like, I like to trust human beings and trust that we're going to be all helping each other sort of attain and achieve success. So that's something that I really wish that I did earlier on. Again, if I'd asked those better questions, what didn't work or what didn't help, early on in growing a business, I'm sure I would have heard that from quite a lot of my mentors. Mm, yes. So in summary, go and seek out help from people who've done it, who were, um, who've achieved success, learn from them because that can fast track your progress. And to add to that also, make sure you surround yourself with the right people around you because as the saying goes, you are the, you are the average of the five people that you surround yourself with. And if you're somebody that um, lacks self-discipline and self-motivation, and, and you are somebody who, who who takes a lot of energy from other people to keep you pushing forward, then you make sure that those people are pushing you in the right direction. 100%. Couldn't agree with you more. And that's a very easy one to um, to get stuck with when you start hanging out with a lot of the old 
people or the old crew or people perhaps that aren't as dedicated or motivated or pushing in the right direction as you. Um, you know, you want to create an environment of growth. You want to have a growth mindset rather than sort of a fixed mindset. So that's a definitely invaluable information. 100%, 100%. And one of the easiest ways to start with is what I typically recommend is join one of the business networks. There's many business networks. There's BNI, there is a BX networking, and they're great networks because there are so many small business owners, some who have been established for years and some who are just starting out. And by you being part of that network, you get to be surround yourself with people who are going through same, you know, who live in the same world, who run business, and and you can learn from it as well. And it actually accelerates your progress um, that way as well. So that's that's why my tip that what I found personally it worked really well for me. Most definitely, and in the health and uh, fitness industry as well, creating a an allied health professional network is so important. Obviously, with the work that I do with these special populations clients, mainly um, getting in with GPs and nutritionists and massage therapists and physiotherapists and creating really good relationships and working hard with them early on in the piece is vital. Because at the end of the day, we end up sending business to everybody. So I've got I, I receive clients from physios, I send them to physios. I receive clients from GPs. I send them back to GP. So if you create that network, it's just going to help to grow your business exponentially in a lot quicker time. Absolutely. You know, I always remember you were drilling into us. You have to be able to write good referral emails. You have to write the referrals properly. I remember that still. I still remember we were sitting at a pool, at a pool area, all of us, you know, sitting at the table and writing our uh, referral letters. And I know up until today, I know that that was a very valuable lesson. Because um, I know when when I was personal trainer, um, these you know this skill set you know writing a proper referral letter you know uh, you know coming across as a very professional somebody um, to refer a client to a physio or doctor um, it it really paid paid off. Yeah, it's it's definitely the missing piece of the puzzle for a lot of personal trainers is to create those uh, those relationships with those allied health professionals. And writing those detailed referral letters is something that I hammered on for about six months, I think, with you guys, you know, week in and week out because it's a, it's a skill and it's something that you can do and repeat over and over again. And then the rewards are there in terms of, you know, as soon as someone thinks about a personal trainer or an EP or an exercise scientist, you're always the first person in mind. And that's where you want to be. You always want to position yourself as first in mind because I still get emails out of the blue from people I haven't heard from from years and years, but they know me, they know what I'm doing and they're coming in to seek for my help. And I haven't spoken to them to years and that's just because I've created such a good network over the years. Absolutely. Now, in the final bit of this interview, I want to talk to you about um, you know physical performance. I mean, we both come from fitness backgrounds, so we know, in, you know it's important to train and, and stay physically fit. What do you do? What is your uh, go-to routine these days to, to keep you fit and active? Look, I am a little bit older. Um, a few things that I've learned over the years is that I can't push myself flat out every single day. Um, so I usually typically exercise about three to four days a week, sometimes a little bit more. Um, I'm spending a lot of time walking and jogging and doing a lot of sort of low intensity, steady state exercise with my clients. But I go to a gym up here in, in the uh, central coast, shout out to body movement. And I just hammer it three to four days a week. So what I've actually started doing a lot of is just going to a lot of high intensity uh, sort of strength training based classes. Uh, it's great for me. You know, I, I'm a trainer. I've written programs my whole life, but sometimes it's just great for me to switch off, have somebody else tell me what to do, have somebody else push me. And then I can see, oh yeah, that's why people like personal trainers because they don't have to think about it. They don't have to organize themselves. They just get in and do the work. And uh, that's my time to really switch off like I said before, get out of my brain and into my body. And I really like to kind of see how far and deep I can go into, into the pain cave, so to speak. So a lot of like red line training, very high intensity, heavy weights, um, because I think that's important. It's important to have that discomfort. You know, we talked about that before. Um, getting uncomfortable is, is really important. So I don't do it as often as I used to. I don't train six or seven days a week, but when I'm in there, I'm still training very, you know, very effectively and, and really trying to push myself. Absolutely, absolutely. It's important to find that balance, and uh, I could definitely agree. Um, it's not about going all helpful leather um, every single day. Um, you got to find that balance um, that works for you. And you know, even if it's just two days a week doing a, a two full body resistance workouts on those two days, but doing them properly, 
that can as, as well just be a good benefit as well. Oh, yeah, <clears> most definitely. I, so I usually do like one day on, one day off um, throughout the course of the week. So I give myself that day off to rest and recharge and nervous system down regulation, knowing that I'm training hard enough within my sessions that my body really needs that break. Sometimes we tend to uh, train too frequently, train too intensely. We don't give ourselves a chance to recover and, you know, I'm not in the business of being overtrained and running into chronic fatigue issues and having issues with sleep and all that sort of stuff. So it's important that I'm operating, you know, and firing at all cylinders at all times. Number one thing is to get started. Whatever it is, just do something. Don't don't sit on the couch all day, do something, go for a walk, do something, because even that a little bit will will have a, a huge impact on your, on your health and happiness. Mm -hmm. And it just takes a while. It takes a while to become consistent. But once it becomes a part of everyday life for you and one of my big things that I say to a lot of my clients, especially when they're first starting an exercise program is don't focus so much on how exercise makes you look, focus on how exercise makes you feel. You know, if you're going in there and thinking about, I know that it might be tough to get started. It's early, it's cold, whatever, I'm tired but I know how good I feel afterwards, you'll chase that feeling. And that's what gets you coming back and back. And then from there, you become consistent, you become compliant, which means you stick to the program that you're on. And then that's where the results come from. So it comes from focusing on how you feel first, and then all the other benefits come afterwards. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Rob, somebody that's listening, has a company looking to get in touch with you. Um, how, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, look, um, corporate wellness is something that is going to be really important in the next couple of months as we start to see companies uh, and offices migrate back to a sort of a blended sort of in and out of office uh, concept. We're going to get more and more people um, in, into offices and that need for community uh, and, and improving physical and mental health have never been more important. So if you are a company that's looking to put in uh, place a health and wellness program or would like to have a chat, I'm more than welcome uh, to help you out. My email is rob at lionhealth.com.au and you can also find my website, which is lionhealth, so www.lionhealth.com.au and you'll also find me on Instagram at lion2 underscores, so line underscore underscore health. And uh, if anybody is interested in starting up a corporate wellness program, I'm more than happy to give you an initial consultation and also the first week of training sessions will be free. So I'm really excited to hopefully help out quite a few companies, re-engage with their employees, get them physically and mentally healthy and active and, you know, really start 2021 with a bang. Boom. Love it. Thank you so much, Rob. It's been a pleasure having you back on, uh, well, it's been, a, it's been great having you on the show and great talking to you again after, after all these years. Um, and I look forward to hopefully one day catch up again and do our sprints like we used to back in Bondi. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. I remember those Saturday morning sprint sessions uh, in the heat, shirts off. Oh, those were the good old days, weren't they? Look, it was fantastic to speak to you, Vit. Uh, I love what you're doing with the podcast. I think it's fantastic. You've got some really, really interesting people on here and I'm just happy to be part of it. So, mate, great chat and I look forward to speaking to you soon. Awesome. All right, mate. Have a great day. See you later.